Hi, welcome to History's Great Speeches. I'm Charles Featherston, voice artist, narrator and compiler of the series. Please like or subscribe and feel free to contact me via Bandcamp, Podbean, Facebook or Patreon to let me know speeches or time periods you'd like to see covered. You can find a full set of links at my website, charlesfeatherston.uk. The Debs Decision, Scott Nearing, 1919. Part 4. Debs Addresses the Jury. When the prosecution had finished with its case, the defence rested and Debs addressed the jury in his own behalf. In that speech to the jury, he said again the things that he had said at Canton, and then he added other things that a jury of old men, who had never heard about socialism, should know about the purposes of the socialist movement. Here are some of the more important passages as taken from the records of the court stenographer. May it please the court and gentlemen of the jury. For the first time in my life I appear before a jury in a court of law to answer to an indictment for crime. I am not a lawyer. I know little about court procedure, about the rules of evidence or legal practice. I know only that you gentlemen are to hear the evidence brought against me, that the court is to instruct you in the law, and that you are then to determine by your verdict whether I shall be branded with criminal guilt and be consigned, perhaps to the end of my life, in a felon's cell. Gentlemen, I do not fear to face you in this hour of accusation, nor do I shrink from the consequences of my utterances or my acts. Standing before you, charged as I am with crime, I can yet look the court in the face, I can look you in the face, I can look the world in the face, for in my conscience, in my soul, there is festering no accusation of guilt. Gentlemen, you have heard the report of my speech at Canton on June 16th, and I submit that there is not a word in that speech to warrant these charges. I admit having delivered the speech. I admit the accuracy of the speech in all of its main features as reported in this proceeding. There were two distinct reports. They vary somewhat, but they are agreed upon all of the material statements embodied in that speech. In what I had to say there, my purpose was to educate the people to understand something about the social system in which we live, and to prepare them to change this system by perfectly peaceable and orderly means into what I, as a socialist, conceive to be a real democracy. From what you have heard in the address of counsel for the prosecution, you might naturally infer that I am an advocate of force and violence. It is not true. I have never advocated violence in any form. I always believed in education, in intelligence, in enlightenment, and I have always made my appeal to the reason and to the conscience of the people. I admit being opposed to the present form of government. I admit being opposed to the present social system. I am doing what little I can, and have been for many years, to bring about a change that shall do away with the rule of the great body of the people by a relatively small class, and establish in this country an industrial social democracy. In the course of the speech that resulted in this indictment, I am charged with having expressed sympathy for Kate Richards O'Hare, for Rose Pastor Stokes, for Ruthenberg, Wagenknecht and Baker. I did express my perfect sympathy with these comrades of mine. I have known them for many years. I have every reason to believe in their integrity, every reason to look upon them with respect, with confidence and with approval. I have been accused of expressing sympathy for the Bolsheviki of Russia. I plead guilty to the charge. I have read a great deal about the Bolsheviki of Russia that is not true. I happen to know of my own knowledge that they have been grossly misrepresented by the press of this country. Who are these much maligned revolutionists of Russia? 
For years, they had been the victims of a brutal czar. They and their antecedents were sent to Siberia, lashed with a knout if they even dreamed of freedom. At last, the hour struck for a great change. The revolution came. The czar was overthrown and his infamous regime ended. What followed? The common people of Russia came into power, the peasants, the toilers, the soldiers, and they proceeded as best they could to establish a government of the people. It may be that the much-despised Bolsheviki may fail at last, but let me say to you that they have written a chapter of glorious history. It will stand to their eternal credit. Their leaders are now denounced as criminals and outlaws. Let me remind you that there was a time when George Washington, who is now revered as the father of this country, was denounced as a disloyalist, when Sam Adams, who is known to us as the father of the American Revolution, was condemned as an incendiary, and Patrick Henry, who delivered that inspired and inspiring oration that aroused the colonists, was condemned as a traitor. They were misunderstood at the time. They stood true to themselves and they won an immortality of gratitude and glory. When great changes occur in history, when great principles are involved, as a rule the majority are wrong. The minority are right. In every age there have been a few heroic souls who have been in advance of their time, who have been misunderstood, maligned, persecuted, sometimes put to death. Long after their martyrdom, monuments were erected to them and garlands were woven for their graves. I have been accused of having obstructed the war. I admit it. Gentlemen, I abhor war. I would oppose the war if I stood alone. When I think of a cold, glittering steel bayonet being plunged in the white, quivering flesh of a human being, I recoil with horror. I have often wondered if I could take the life of my fellow men, even to save my own. Men talk about holy wars. There are none. Let me remind you that it was Benjamin Franklin who said, There never was a good war or a bad peace. Napoleon Bonaparte was a high authority upon the subject of war. And when, in his last days, he was chained to the rock of St. Helena, when he felt the skeleton hand of death reaching for him, he cried out in horror, War is the trade of savages and barbarians. I have read some history. I know that it is ruling classes that make war upon one another and not the people. In all of the history of this world, the people have never yet declared a war, not one, I do not believe that really civilised nations would murder one another. I would refuse to kill a human being on my own account. Why should I at the command of anyone else or at the command of any power on earth? Twenty centuries ago, one appeared upon earth whom we know as the Prince of Peace. He issued a command in which I believe. He said, love one another. He did not say kill one another, but love one another. He espoused the cause of the suffering poor, just as Rose Pastor Stokes did, just as Kate Richards O'Hare did, and the poor heard him gladly. It was not long before he aroused the ill will and the hatred of the usurers, the money changers, the profiteers, the high priests, the lawyers, the judges, the merchants, the bankers, in a word, the ruling class. They said of him just what the ruling class says of the socialist today. He is preaching dangerous doctrine, he is inciting the common rabble, he is a menace to peace and order, and they had him arraigned, tried, convicted, condemned, and they had his quivering body spiked to the gates of Jerusalem. This has been the tragic history of the race. In the ancient world, Socrates sought to teach some new truths to the people, and they made him drink the fatal hemlock. 
It has been true all along the track of the ages. The men and women who have been in advance, who have had new ideas, new ideals, who have had the courage to attack the established order of things, have all had to pay the same penalty. A century and a half ago, when the American colonists were still foreign subjects, and when there were a few men who had faith in the common people and believed that they could rule themselves without a king, in that day to speak against the king was treason. If you read Bancroft or any other standard historian, you will find that a great majority of the colonists believed in the king and actually believed that he had a divine right to rule over them. They had been taught to believe that to say a word against the king, to question his so-called divine right, was sinful. There were ministers who opened their Bibles to prove that it was the patriotic duty of the people to loyally serve and support the king. But there were a few men in that day who said, we don't need a king, we can govern ourselves, and they began an agitation that has been immortalised in history. Washington, Adams, Payne, these were the rebels of their day. At first they were opposed by the people and denounced by the press. You can remember that it was Franklin who said to his compeers, we have now to hang together or we'll hang separately by and by. And if the revolution had failed, the revolutionary fathers would have been executed as felons. But it did not fail. Revolutions have a habit of succeeding when the time comes for them. The revolutionary forefathers were opposed to the form of government in their day. They were denounced, they were condemned, but they had the moral courage to stand erect and defy all the storms of detraction. And that is why they are in history, and that is why the great respectable majority of their day sleep in forgotten graves. The world does not know they ever lived. At a later time there began another mighty agitation in this country. It was against an institution that was deemed a very respectable one in its time, the institution of chattel slavery, that became all-powerful, that controlled the president, both branches of Congress, the Supreme Court, the press, to a very large extent the pulpit. All of the organised forces of society, all the powers of government, upheld chattel slavery in that day. And again a few appeared. One of them was Elijah Lovejoy, Elijah Lovejoy was as much despised in his day as are the leaders of the IWW in our day. Elijah Lovejoy was murdered in cold blood in Alton, Illinois in 1837 simply because he was opposed to chattel slavery, just as I am opposed to wage slavery. When you go down the Mississippi River and look up at Alton, you see a magnificent white shaft erected there in memory of a man who was true to himself and his convictions of right and duty unto death. It was my good fortune to personally know Wendell Phillips. I heard the story of his persecution, in part at least, from his own eloquent lips just a little while before they were silenced in death. William Lloyd Garrison, Garrett Smith, Thaddeus Stevens, these leaders of the abolition movement, who were regarded as monsters of depravity, were true to the faith and stood their ground. They are all in history. You are teaching your children to revere their memories, while all of their detractors are in oblivion. Chattel slavery disappeared. We are not yet free. We are engaged in another mighty agitation today. It is as wide as the world. It is the rise of the toiling and producing masses who are gradually becoming conscious of their interest, their power as a class, who are organising industrially and politically, who are slowly but surely developing the economic and political power that is to set them free. 
They are still in the minority, but they have learned how to wait and to bide their time. It is because I happen to be in this minority that I stand in your presence today, charged with crime. It is because I believe as the revolutionary fathers believed in their day that a change was due in the interests of the people, that the time had come for a better form of government, an improved system, a higher social order, a nobler humanity and a grander civilization. This minority that is so much misunderstood and so bitterly maligned is in alliance with the forces of evolution and as certain as I stand before you this afternoon, it is but a question of time until this minority will become the conquering majority and inaugurate the greatest change in all of the history of the world. You may hasten the change, you may retard it, you can no more prevent it than you can prevent the coming of the sunrise on the morrow. My friend, the assistant prosecutor, doesn't like what I had to say in my speech about internationalism. What is there objectionable to internationalism? If we had internationalism, there would be no war. I believe in patriotism. I have never uttered a word against the flag. I love the flag as a symbol of freedom. I object only when that flag is prostituted to base purposes, to sordid ends, by those who, in the name of patriotism, would keep the people in subjection. I believe, however, in a wider patriotism. Thomas Paine said, My country is the world, to do good is my religion. Garrison said, My country is the world and all mankind are my countrymen. That is the essence of internationalism. I believe in it with all of my heart. I believe that nations have been pitted against nations long enough in hatred, in strife, in warfare. I believe there ought to be a bond of unity between all of these nations. I believe that the human race consists of one great family. I love the people of this country, but I don't hate the people of any country on earth, not even the Germans. I refuse to hate a human being because he happens to be born in some other country. Why should I? To me, it does not make any difference where he was born or what the colour of his skin may be. Like myself, he is the image of his creator. He is a human being endowed with the same faculties, he has the same aspirations, he is entitled to the same rights, and I would infinitely rather serve him and love him than to hate him and kill him. We hear a great deal about human brotherhood, a beautiful and inspiring theme. It is preached from a countless number of pulpits. It is vain for us to preach of human brotherhood while we tolerate this social system in which we are a mass of warring units, in which millions of workers have to fight one another for jobs, and millions of businessmen and professional men have to fight one another for trade, for practice, in which we have individual interests and each is striving to care for himself alone without reference to his fellow men. Human brotherhood is yet to be realised in this world. It can never be under the capitalist competitive system in which we live. Yes, I was opposed to the war. I am perfectly willing on that count to be branded as a disloyalist, and if it is a crime under the American law punishable by imprisonment for being opposed to human bloodshed, I am perfectly willing to be clothed in the stripes of a convict and to end my days in a prison cell. The war of the revolution was opposed. The Tory press denounced its leaders as criminals and outlaws. And that is what they were, under the divine right of a king to rule men. The War of 1812 was opposed and condemned. 
The Mexican War was bitterly condemned by Abraham Lincoln, by Charles Sumner, by Daniel Webster and by Henry Clay. That war took place under the Polk administration. These men denounced the president, they condemned his administration, and they said that the war was a crime against humanity. They were not indicted, they were not tried for crime. They are honoured today by all of their countrymen. The war of the rebellion was opposed and condemned. In 1864, the Democratic Party met in convention at Chicago and passed a resolution condemning the war as a failure. What would you say if the Socialist Party were to meet in convention today and condemn the present war as a failure? You charge us with being disloyalists and traitors. Were the Democrats of 1864 disloyalists and traitors because they condemned the war as a failure? I believe in the Constitution of the United States. Isn't it strange that we socialists stand almost alone today in defending the Constitution of the United States? The revolutionary fathers who had been oppressed under King's rule understood that free speech and the right of free assemblage by the people were the fundamental principles of democratic government. The very first amendment to the Constitution reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That is perfectly plain English. It can be understood by a child. I believe that the revolutionary fathers meant just what is here stated, that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That is the right that I exercised at Canton on the 16th day of last June. And for the exercise of that right, I now have to answer to this indictment. I believe in the right of free speech, in war as well as in peace. I would not, under any circumstances, gag the lips of my bitterest enemy. I would, under no circumstances, suppress free speech. It is far more dangerous to attempt to gag the people than to allow them to speak freely of what is in their hearts. I do not go as far as Wendell Phillips did. Wendell Phillips said that the glory of free men is that they trample unjust laws under their feet. That is how they repeal them. If a human being submits to having his lips sealed, to be in silence reduced to vassalage, he may have all else, but he is still lacking in all that dignifies and glorifies real manhood. Now, notwithstanding this fundamental provision in the national law, socialists' meetings have been broken up all over this country. Socialist speakers have been arrested by hundreds and flung into jail, where many of them are lying now. In some cases, not even a charge was lodged against them, guilty of no crime except the crime of attempting to exercise the right guaranteed to them by the Constitution of the United States. I have told you that I am no lawyer, but it seems to me that I know enough to know that if Congress enacts any law that conflicts with this provision in the Constitution, that law is void. If the espionage law finally stands, then the Constitution of the United States is dead. If that law is not the negation of every fundamental principle established by the Constitution, then certainly I am unable to read or to understand the English language. War does not come by chance. War is not the result of accident. There is a definite cause for war, especially a modern war. 
The war that began in Europe can readily be accounted for. For the last 40 years, under this international capitalist system, this exploiting system, these various nations of Europe have been preparing for the inevitable. And why? In all these nations, the great industries are owned by a relatively small class. They are operated for the profit of that class. And great abundance is produced by the workers, but their wages will only buy back a small part of their product. What is the result? They have a vast surplus on hand. They have got to export it. They have got to find a foreign market for it. As a result of this, these nations are pitted against each other. They are industrial rivals, competitors. They begin to arm themselves to open, to maintain the market and quickly dispose of their surplus. There is but the one market. All these nations are competitors for it, and sooner or later every war of trade becomes a war of blood. Now, where there is exploitation, there must be some form of militarism to support it. Wherever you find exploitation, you find some form of military force. In a smaller way, you find it in this country. It was there long before war was declared. For instance, when the miners out in Colorado entered upon a strike about four years ago, the state militia, that is under the control of the Standard Oil Company, marched upon a camp where the miners and their wives and children were in tents. And by the way, a report of this strike was issued by the United States Commission on Industrial Relations. When the soldiers approached the camp at Ludlow, where these miners with their wives and children were, the miners, to prove that they were patriotic, placed flags above their tents, and when the state militia, that is paid by Rockefeller and controlled by Rockefeller, swooped down upon that camp, the first thing they did was to shoot those United States flags into tatters. Not one of them was indicted or tried because he was a traitor to his country. Pregnant women were killed and a number of innocent children slain. This in the United States of America, the fruit of exploitation. The miners wanted a little more of what they had been producing. But the Standard Oil Company wasn't rich enough. It insisted that all they were entitled to was just enough to keep them in working order. There is slavery for you. And when at last they protested, when they were tormented by hunger, when they saw their children in tatters, they were shot down as if they had been so many vagabond dogs. And while I am upon this point, let me say just another word. Working men who organise and who sometimes commit overt acts are very often condemned by those who have no conception of the conditions under which they live. How many men are there, for instance, who know anything of their own knowledge about how men work in a lumber camp, a logging camp, a turpentine camp? In this report of the United States Commission on Industrial Relations, you will find the statement proved that peonage existed in the state of Texas. Out of these conditions springs such a thing as the IWW. When men receive a pittance for their pay, when they work like galley slaves for a wage that barely suffices to keep their protesting souls within their tattered bodies. When they can endure the condition no longer, and they make some sort of a demonstration, or perhaps commit acts of violence, how quickly are they condemned by those who do not know anything about the conditions under which they work? Five gentlemen of distinction, among them Professor John Graham Brooks of Harvard University, said that a word that so fills the world as the IWW must have something in it. It must be investigated. 
and they did investigate it, each along their own lines. And I wish it were possible for every man and woman in this country to read the result of their investigation. They tell you why and how the IWW was instituted. They tell you, moreover, that the great corporations such as the Standard Oil Company, such as the Coal Trust and the Lumber Trust have, through their agents, committed more crimes against the IWW than the IWW have ever committed against them. I was asked not long ago if I was in favour of shooting our soldiers in the back. I said, no, I would not shoot them in the back. I wouldn't shoot them at all. I would not have them shot. Much has been made of a statement that I declared that men were fit for something better than slavery and cannon fodder. I made the statement. I make no attempt to deny it. I meant exactly what I said. Men are fit for something better than slavery and cannon fodder. And the time will come, though I shall not live to see it, when slavery will be wiped from the earth, and when men will marvel that there ever was a time when men who called themselves civilised rushed upon each other like wild beasts and murdered one another, by methods so cruel and barbarous that they defy the power of language to describe. I can hear the shrieks of the soldiers of Europe in my dreams. I have imagination enough to see a battlefield. I can see it strewn with the wrecks of human beings, who but yesterday were in the flush and glory of their young manhood. I can see them at eventide, scattered about in remnants, their limbs torn from their bodies, their eyes gouged out. Yes, I can see them, and I can hear them. I look above and beyond this frightful scene. I think of the mothers who are bowed in the shadow of their last great grief, whose hearts are breaking. And I say to myself, I am going to do the little that lies in my power to wipe from this earth that terrible scourge of war. If I believed in war, I could not be kept out of the first-line trenches. I would not be patriotic at long range. I would be honest enough, if I believed in bloodshed, to shed my own. But I do not believe that the shedding of blood bears any actual testimony to patriotism, to love of country, to civilization. On the contrary, I believe that warfare in all of its forms is an impeachment of our social order and a rebuke to our much-vaunted Christian civilization. And now, gentlemen of the jury, I am not going to detain you too long. I wish to admit everything that has been said respecting me from this witness chair. I wish to admit everything that has been charged against me except what is embraced in the indictment from which I have read to you. I cannot take back a word. I cannot repudiate a sentence. I stand before you guilty of having made this speech. I stand before you prepared to accept the consequences of what there is embraced in that speech. I do not know, I cannot tell what your verdict may be, nor does it matter much so far as I am concerned. Gentlemen, I am the smallest part of this trial. I have lived long enough to appreciate my own personal insignificance in relation to a great issue that involves the welfare of the whole people. What you may choose to do to me will be of small consequence after all. I am not on trial here. There is an infinitely greater issue that is being tried today in this court, though you may not be conscious of it. American institutions are on trial here before a court of American citizens. The future will tell.